First Peter chapter 1. Go to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and just keep going left, and you'll hit it pretty quickly. Four verses, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, speaking of this life, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, this day, every opportunity that you give us to gather together. And we thank you that you have given us so much to celebrate every day, but we love this day that is set aside to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We pray for your blessing upon the gathering of Christians and others all around this city and all around the world today. We pray that in this place and in churches all around the world that you would meet with them and that you would meet with us in a special way, in a powerful way, and that you would confirm your gospel with accompanying signs and wonders in each person's heart. We pray, Lord, especially for Christians in the Middle East this Easter season and specifically in Egypt, this attempt to eradicate the Middle East of Christians virtually. We pray, Lord, that even as they're afraid to go into meet in large assemblies because of the bombing and the persecution that as they meet from house to house, that you would meet powerfully with them in your presence and that your favor and your spirit would be strong upon them. We thank you for what we're about to study now. We pray, Lord, I do for each one of us for whom this is a familiar message, that you would use this time to give us a greater and a deeper appreciation for what it is you have done for us because of Jesus' resurrection. And Lord, I pray and we pray for each man, woman that is in this room today for whom all of this is new. And we pray, Lord, that you would give life to this message, that they would hear your invitation to become a part of your family and respond to that today. All of these things require a work of your Holy Spirit. We ask for that and we yield to you, Lord, concerning that the work of your Spirit in our lives today, corporately, individually. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Of course, today, with Christians all over the world, we celebrate what is the capstone of the three greatest events in human history, the uh, death of Jesus Christ upon the cross is the full and satisfying payment for our sins, his burial, and then the capstone, his resurrection from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion and 
burial. If I were not a Christian, one of the questions I would have concerning Jesus' resurrection would be, why in the world is it so important? And why is it so important to Christians? And why is it so important to God? Why wasn't it sufficient for Jesus simply to die for our sins? Why was it also necessary that Jesus rise again from the dead? And I think that there are many reasons for Jesus' resurrection, but this morning I'd like to focus our attention on just the one that is given to us in our passage here in 1 Peter, that Jesus rose from the dead in order to provide mankind, to provide you individually, me individually, with a living hope. And I think it's important to begin by taking a moment to understand the meaning of hope as it's used in the Bible. As the word hope is used within our culture, for the most part, it's used in a way in which uh, it carries the idea of uncertainty. For example, we say to ourselves or to someone else that we hope that a store that we're going to won't be crowded when we arrive. We hope that the commute home on the freeway from work uh, won't be uh, all backed up. We hope that our flight will be on time and so forth. And we use the term hope in that kind of a circumstance, and we're not certain at all that any of those things are actually going to be true. We just hope they'll be true. We just wish that they'll be true. As one little boy put it when he asked his definition of hope, he said, hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. And that's how it works within our culture. But the word hope that Peter uses here in verse 3 in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, it doesn't carry a single element within it of uncertainty. It literally means to anticipate with a confident expectation. There's no sense of uncertainty because when we hope in something that God has promised, that promise is as sure as the one who has promised it. I think it's very interesting to realize that Peter could not have used a stronger word to describe a Christian's hope than the word that he used for living in verse 3. It is the very Greek word that is repeatedly used in the New Testament to describe the God of the Bible as the living God. In other words, whatever this hope is that Peter is describing here is in his mind, and he intends it to be so in the mind of every Christian, it is as alive and sure as God Almighty is alive and sure. You simply cannot declare something to be more sure in terms of the language you use than Peter does here in the use of his language. Now, let's take a moment to acknowledge the necessity of hope in life. I don't think that any one of us in this room with any kind of life experience uh, doubts the vital importance of hope in life, the fact that hope is very, very powerful stuff. One of the greatest examples of this I've uh, ever heard was uh, concerning an experiment conducted in 1957 by Kurt Richter. He was a biologist and a uh, psychobiologist, 
and geneticist at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, a very famous university. And what he did in his experiment is he placed wild rats in a, in a acrylic glass cylinders filled with water from which they literally had absolutely no hope of escape. On average, the rats swam for 16 minutes before they gave up and drowned. The interesting thing about the experiment is it wasn't that they couldn't have swam longer, but at about 16 minutes, each rat, whether at the time operating under the instinct of uh, flight or under the instinct of fight, they concluded that their situation was hopeless and so they gave up and they died. He then set another set of wild rats in another tank of water under the same circumstances. And at the moment they were showing signs of hopelessness and about to drown as he had seen in the first set of rats. The rats were plucked out of the water, they were dried off and fed. And then later those same rats were reintroduced into the very same situation of acrylic cylinders filled with water and they swam. But now in the hope of being rescued, once again, uh, under the influence of hope, uh, these rats swam for a full three days. And Mr. Richter wrote it of this second group of wild rats, in this way, he said, the rats quickly learned that the situation is not actually hopeless. And the difference between 16 minutes and three days had nothing to do with their physical strength. It was only a matter of days before they were reintroduced into the water. The sole difference was the introduction of hope into their lives and into their situation. That is the importance of hope. That is the power of hope, not only in rats, of course, but also in people. And of course, today we have mountains of subsequent research that has been in the last 60 years built upon uh, Carl Richter's uh, research confirming the necessity and the power of hope in human beings as well. Now, it's very important to notice that Peter is not speaking uh, here merely about hope in a general sense in this Bible passage, but in a very, very specific sense. He speaks of something that he calls a living hope. So it raises the question for us, what in the world is a living hope? Very simply, a living hope is a hope that has conquered death. It is a hope that a person possesses that does not fear death. It is a hope that views death somehow as a defeated enemy. It is a hope that is confident that it possesses in some way an absolute victory over death. And Peter further reveals in this verse 3 the source or the foundation of this living hope. Peter declares that the Christian's hope in the face of death rests firmly and wonderfully upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reveals to us His absolute power, 
His absolute authority and victory over this thing called death, this enemy of mankind called death. At one point in Jesus' public ministry, the Jewish religious leaders came to him, and they opposed him right and left the entire three and a half years of his public ministry. And these scribes and these Pharisees came to him asking him, for a sign. Matthew chapter 12, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. A sign to prove what? A sign to prove Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, and a sign to further prove His claim to be divine, to be the Son of God and to be God the Son. They really didn't need any more signs than they already had to prove that. The land of Israel from the north, the south, the east, the west, from its length and from its breadth, the whole land was filled with testimonies to the fact that He was and is the promised Messiah, and He was indeed the Son of God. From one end of the land to the other, the blind were seeing, the lame were walking, the lepers had been cleansed, the deaf were hearing, even the dead had been raised, the poor were having the gospel preached to them, all prophecies given concerning the Messiah. But the fascinating thing to me is that Jesus conceded to give them one more sign And he answered them, and he said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." And what sign was Jesus giving to those religious leaders? It was the sign of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And He declared that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that gray fish, that so too He would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is that He would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights only. It was a prophecy concerning His resurrection, that death would not be able to hold Him. And in doing so, what Jesus was communicating, among other things, was the importance to those religious leaders, but also to every one of us in this room this morning, the importance of never trusting in any so-called religion or philosophy or Savior or salvation that has not also conquered this great enemy of mankind called death. And we all know in this world in which we live that there's no shortage of men and women who are very, very willing to wax eloquent and philosophical about anything and everything in life, including life, including death, including eternity, including everlasting life. But if they have not also conquered death, they are not to be trusted. And Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but He then proceeded to demonstrate His absolute authority over death through His resurrection. And to that I say, praise the Lord. And He did so just as He declared that He would when He was going up to Jerusalem 
as his crucifixion was nearing with the disciples, while he was walking on the road with them, he declared to them, Behold, we are coming up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And this he spoke concerning himself. And of course, all of this was exactly as uh, God had promised the Messiah would. Through the Old Testament scriptures, as God declared through David in Psalm uh, 1610, David wrote, for you, speaking to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol, that is hell. And then David went further and said, nor will you, speaking to the Father, allow your Holy One, that is Messiah, to see corruption. A thousand years before Jesus uh, died on the cross and was buried and resurrected, God had declared through David that the Messiah would indeed die and he would be buried, but that he would not remain in that dead condition long enough to see corruption and, and uh, the corruption of his body, but that he would rise again from the dead. Now, the only reason there is a living hope in this world, that is a hope that can withstand the threat of death in, in our, our life, is because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his open demonstration of his victory over death. And the reason that Jesus can give everlasting life to us is because he has defeated death and he possesses an absolute authority over it. But the wonder of his victory is not simply that he conquered death, but that he has also found a way to share his victory with us. And then further, the revelation of the fact that he, has, he is eager to do so concerning each and every one of us here this morning. This is why Peter explains to us that we, uh, that we can come to possess this living hope and make it our own today by being begotten again. And he declares that in verse 3 as well. He declares God has begotten us again uh, to this living hope. And the phrase begotten us again literally means to be born again. God has born us again as Christians into this living hope. It is being born again that introduces this hope into our life. Of course, the language that Peter uses takes us back immediately to the most famous evangelism uh, kind of conversation that occurred as it's recorded in all of the Bible, and that is that famous salvation encounter in John's Gospel, chapter 3, between Jesus and a very, very religious man by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
Nicodemus, hearing about being born again, thinks of it solely in a natural sense, and he poses the question that you might expect of him. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Evidently, Nicodemus was old. He said, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's working, trying to work this through in his mind, a little grotesque. Jesus then answered, And he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again as Jesus describes it? It speaks of a spiritual birth. Every single one of us in this room has experienced a physical birth. We've been born physically. But Jesus said we need a spiritual birth in order to have a relationship with God. That raises the question then, how in the world is one born again? Later in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus spoke the most famous words in the Bible concerning how to be born again. In John 3.16, when Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is how a person is born again. And that verse, those words from Jesus are the single most important words any human being will ever hear in the course of their lifetime, including you and and me this morning. For God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, believes or trusts in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we become born again by simply accepting God's assessment of us, and that is sinners in need of a Savior, and then being willing to repent of our sin and our self-will in our life, and then to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and then to receive the Holy Spirit into our lives as a result of that. And that results in us being born again. A child can do it. An old man like Nicodemus can do it as well. Anyone can do it. And when a person trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, the single greatest miracle that a human being can ever experience occurs. God Almighty, I never cease to be in wonder over it. God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit then comes into our lives and we are born again as a result. And you experience a spiritual birth as a result that is every bit as real as your physical birth. Not only receiving the forgiveness of sins, but also providing us with the capacity for a relationship with God and then providing uh, for us everlasting life and a victory over death. And it's important for, to realize that for the Christian, everlasting life does not begin when we die. It is something that we possess 
right now. When Jesus had that famous conversation in John chapter 11 with Martha, Martha hears that Jesus has come into the city of Bethany after the death of uh, her uh, brother Lazarus, and she makes a beeline then with, uh, to Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus spoke to Martha, and he loved Martha. And he said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And then Jesus said famously to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And as if it couldn't get any better than that sentence that Jesus spoke, what he spoke next was even greater than that. He said, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, when Jesus declared himself to be the resurrection and the life, he did not say that he knew the way to everlasting life or that he knew the secret of everlasting life or that he points the way to everlasting life or that he is even able to perform resurrections. He declared that everlasting life and victory over death are found in him and that victory is accessed through a personal relationship with him. In other words, he was saying to Martha, Martha, resurrection, victory over death, and everlasting life are not found in some future time or place or day or event. They are found in me, here, now, today. I'm not merely some teacher teaching about resurrection, some teacher with a fascination about everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am singularly, I am the author of resurrection and the source of life because I alone have victory and authority over death. And Jesus was making a promise to every single Christian down through the ages and every Christian in the world today and every Christian that is in this room this morning, that if you are alive, we trust you are, if you are alive and, number two, believe in Jesus, Jesus declares that you will never die. Let me explain that for a moment. It's interesting that when you read the New Testament that you can't help but notice the difficulty with which the writers of the New Testament, even inspired by the Holy Spirit, the difficulty that even the great apostle Paul had in trying to describe the death of a Christian in human terms. Death is described by Paul as departing, as being absent from the body, as having fallen asleep in Christ. And one of the reasons for the struggle in trying to describe what happens to a Christian at the time of death is the limitation of human language, because our English word death does not accurately 
represent and describe what happens to a Christian at the moment of death. Because death in the word that how we use it within the culture implies that someone or something has ceased to exist. The most accurate term that could be used to describe the death of a Christian is not that they have died, but rather that they have moved. We do not die. We never cease to exist as Christians, but we do move. We move, the Bible says, from this earthly house, this tent, this uh, body of ours into a new body that's eternal, that's been fashioned by God, made for heaven, made for eternity. In the words of the Holy Spirit, this corruption puts on incorruption. Our mortality puts on immortality. The Apostle Paul describes it very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he declares, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, he's talking about our physical body as Christians, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, how many of you groan in your body uh, this morning? Uh, If you don't, you'll reach a place where every movement in life comes with a sound, and that sound has a groan. Don't think you'll escape it. Don't make fun of older people when they groan to get out of the car or off the couch or uh, to lean over and pick something up off of the floor. You'll be there one day. For in this body we groan, eagerly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, that is a disembodied spirit, uh, but uh, to be further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You see, this physical body that I have and that you have, it is not supremely who I am. Our physical body is the means by which uh, we have to express the real us who lives inside of the body. At the moment of death as a Christian, who and what I am does not cease to exist. The real me does not. It simply moves. And the Bible teaches that Jesus' victory over sin and over death and over hell has reduced, this is wonderful news, has reduced uh, death from being an enemy in our lives to being a butler. What is a butler? A butler is simply someone who invites someone as they meet them at the front door of a great house or a great manor house. They meet them at the front door, and the butler then invites them from outside of the house into the house. And at the moment of death and the life of a Christian, we are simply ushered out of this temporary tent of this physical body and into the new body that is made for heaven and made for eternity. Death, if it comes to me one day, 
uh, before the rapture of the church. It will simply say to me, hi, Damien, let's get you out of that tent that is breaking down badly on you and allow me to usher you into your new body. Someone has said that what we call death today is merely an incident in the course of an endless life. And for the Christian, it's absolutely true. A Christian never dies. We never cease to exist for a moment. Our relationship with God is not broken, not for a nanosecond. We simply move out of this physical body and into a new body made for heaven, made for eternity. I love what D.L. Moody, the famous uh, evangelist, American evangelist of the 18th cent- uh, 19th century, he said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. And that's the truth, not only for D.L. Moody, but for the Christian. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And why do we possess this living hope? Because a living, resurrected Jesus brought it into our lives when we trusted in Him for salvation. Now, let me close with one final thought in verse 3. And it's important to notice that the Holy Spirit declares all of this, this reality that I'm talking about this morning of a living hope, declares it to be a cause for continual praise. uh, Peter begins the verse in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea is for us as Christians to say, come on now as Christians, let this truth be a constant source of praise and thanksgiving in our lives. Yes, we must still face all of the fallenness as those early Christians were that he was writing to, all of the fallenness uh, of life in this world. But to understand in the midst of all of that for us as Christians, that all of the big issues in life have been taken care of, all of the eternal issues in life have been taken care of, and that we have been freed from the bondage of the fear of death, and that's a lot to be freed from. And the very thought of it not only produced great praise as we read in this passage from uh, the pen and the lips and the heart of the apostle Peter, but also from the pen and the heart and the lips of the apostle Paul, where he wrote famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I like how one poet put it, Hosanna to the Prince of Light that clothed himself in clay, entered the iron gates of death, and tore the bars away. Death is no more the king of dread. Since our Emmanuel rose, he took the tyrant's sting away and spoiled our hellish foes. Now holy triumphs of the soul shall death itself outbrave, leave dull mortality behind and fly beyond the grave. And so let's conclude this morning 
with the same questions that we began with. Why is the resurrection so critical? Why wasn't it sufficient for Jesus to simply die for our sins? Why was it necessary that Jesus rise from the dead? One of those reasons is in order to provide you and I with a living hope. And it is very, very important to give some thought to death before it comes, to be prepared for death before it comes. Many people, I think, as I've observed in life, who are incredibly diligent, uh, I mean unspeakably faithful, uh, to invest the necessary time in planning their career path or preparing for retirement or planning even their next vacation, planning everything but not preparing for death and for the life to come. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares to us today that there is only one adequate preparation for death and that is to put my faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who has fully and finally conquered death. And the good news for each of us this morning is to know that he didn't simply conquer it for himself. He conquered it in order to then share that victory with you and I, to free us among other things, from living our lives in the fear of death. And he loves to share that victory with us and in the greatness of our need for a victory over death. And so there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And this real as that your physical birth was, as real as your physical reality is. That's how real the spiritual birth is and that spiritual life that God will bring into your life this morning as you would put your faith in Christ. And these men and women who will be up in front after the service would love to answer your questions if you have never done that never confessed your sin to God, been willing to repent of your sin in self-will, put your faith in Jesus, and then to receive and experience this miracle. All there for the asking, all there for the receiving. This is a sinner savior, and he is the perfect match for every need that each and every one of us have in our lives as a result of that awful, awful, tragic fall of Adam and Eve and that ancient Garden of Eden. Come into the relationship with God that he desires to have with you and into the life that he has planned for you. You've tried your own. How's that going? I hit age 25 and said, this isn't going that great. I said, I think he can do better than I can, whatever age you might be. But even if your life is going great, the sin issue must be dealt with, and you will never be able to deal with that on your own. Only a sinless Savior could provide salvation to sinners such as you and I. There are none in this room who are so good that we do not need to be saved, 
And there are none in this room who are so bad that we cannot be saved. Praise the Lord for the love of God this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we stand in awe of all of this, and you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to do it. You could have written us off, but you didn't. And we thank you, Father, for finding a way in your wisdom and in your love and a way that didn't cause you to violate your character and your righteousness to be able to provide us with the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of your Son, and then to bring into our life, Lord, an answer to this enemy called death that has marched through human history since the Garden of Eden. We thank you for how rich you have made us in your Son. We bless you this morning from this place. We pray that you would put a song in our heart, a lightness in our step, a worship and a celebration within our hearts and our minds, Lord, for the rest of this day and the rest of our lives because of how good you have been to us in Christ Jesus and how rich you have made us in him. We bless you this morning for the life that is ours because of you, because of him, and because of your Holy Spirit. And we bless you in his holy name, in Jesus' name. Amen.